Book One, Chapter Nine of Michael Strogoff by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Nine: Day and Night in a Tarantas. The next day, the nineteenth of July, the Caucasus reached Perm, the last place at which she touched on the Kama. The government of which Perm is the capital is one of the largest in the Russian Empire, and, extending over the Ural Mountains, encroaches on Siberian territory. Marble quarries, mines of salt, platina, gold, and coal are worked here on a large scale. Although Perm, by its situation, has become an important town, it is by no means attractive, being extremely dirty and without resources. This want of comfort is of no consequence to those going to Siberia, for they come from the more civilized districts and are supplied with all necessaries. At Perm, travelers from Siberia resell their vehicles, more or less damaged by the long journey across the plains. There, too, those passing from Europe to Asia purchase carriages or sleighs in the winter season. Michael Strogoff had already sketched out his program. A vehicle carrying the mail usually runs across the Ural Mountains, but this, of course, was discontinued. Even if it had not been so, he would have not taken it, as he wished to travel as fast as possible, without depending on anyone. He wisely preferred to buy a carriage and journey by stages, stimulating the zeal of the postilions by well-applied navotku or tips. Unfortunately, in consequence of the measures taken against foreigners of Asiatic origin, a large number of travellers had already left Perm, and therefore conveyances were extremely rare. Michael was obliged to content himself with what had been rejected by others. As to horses, as long as the Tsar's courier was not in Siberia, he could exhibit his podoroina, and the postmasters would give him the preference. But once out of Europe, he had to depend alone on the power of his rubles. But to what sort of a vehicle should he harness his horses? To a telga or to a tarantas? The telga is nothing but an open four-wheeled cart, made entirely of wood the pieces fastened together by means of strong rope. Nothing could be more primitive, nothing could be less comfortable, but, on the other hand, should any accident happen on the way, nothing could be more easily repaired. There is no want of fares on the Russian frontier, and axle trees grow naturally in forests. The post extraordinary, known by the name of Perkladnoi, is carried by the telga, as any road is good enough for it. It must be confessed that sometimes the ropes which fasten the concern together break, and whilst the hinder part remains stuck in some bog, the forepart arrives at the post-house on two wheels. But this result is considered quite satisfactory. Michael Strogoff would have been obliged to employ a telga if he had not been lucky enough to discover a tarantas. It is to be hoped that the invention of Russian coach-builders will devise some improvement in this last-named vehicle springs are wanting in it as well as in the telga in the absence of iron wood is not spared but its four wheels with eight or nine feet between them assure a certain equilibrium over the jolting rough roads a splashboard protects the travellers from the mud and a strong leathern hood which may be pulled quite over the occupiers shelters them from the great heat and violent storms of the summer the tarantas is as solid and as easy to repair as the telga and is, moreover, less addicted to leaving its hinder part in the middle of the road. It was not without careful search that Michael managed to discover the Starantas, and there was probably not a second to be found in all Perm. 
he haggled long about the price for form's sake to act up on his part as nicholas korpanov a plain merchant of irkutsk nadia had followed her companion in his search after a suitable vehicle although the object of each was different both were equally anxious to arrive at their goal one would have said the same will animated them both sister said michael i wish i could have found a more comfortable conveyance for you do you say that to me brother when i would have gone on foot if need were to rejoin my father i do not doubt your courage nadia but there are physical fatigues a woman may be unable to endure i shall endure them whatever they be replied the girl if you ever hear a complaint from me you may leave me in the road and continue your journey alone half an hour later the podoroina being presented by michael three post horses were harnessed to the tarantas these animals covered with long hair were very like long-legged bears they were small but spirited being of siberian breed the way in which the yemshik harnessed them was thus one the largest was secured between two long shafts on whose farther end was a hoop carrying tassels and bells the two others were simply fastened by ropes to the steps of the tarantas this was the complete harness with mere strings for reins neither michael strogoff nor the young livonian girl had any baggage the rapidity with which one wished to make the journey and the more than modest resources of the other prevented them from embarrassing themselves with packages it was a fortunate thing under the circumstances for the tarantas could not have carried both baggage and travellers it was only made for two persons without counting the yemshik who kept his equilibrium on his narrow seat in a marvellous manner the yemshik is changed at every relay the man who drove the tarantas during the first stage was like his horses a siberian and no less shaggy than they long hair cut square on the forehead hat with a turned-up brim red belt coat with crossed facings and buttons stamped with the imperial cipher the yemshik on coming up with his team threw an inquisitive glance at the passengers of the tarantas no luggage and had there been where in the world could he have stowed it rather shabby in appearance too he looked contemptuous crows said he without caring whether he was overheard or not crows at six kopecks a verst no eagles said michael who understood the yemshik's slang perfectly eagles do you hear at nine kopecks a verst and a tip besides he was answered by a merry crack of the whip in the language of the russian postilions the crow is the stingy or poor traveller who at the post-houses only pays two or three kopecks a verst for the horses the eagle is the traveller who does not mind expense to say nothing of liberal tips therefore the crow could not came to fly as rapidly as the imperial bird nadia and michael immediately took their places in the tarantas a small store of provisions was put in the box in case at any time they were delayed in reaching the post-houses which are very comfortably provided under direction of the state the hood was pulled up as it was insupportably hot and at twelve o'clock the tarantas left perm in a cloud of dust the way in which the yemshik kept up the pace of his team would have certainly astonished travellers who being neither russian nor siberian were not accustomed to this sort of thing the leader rather larger than the others kept to a steady long trot perfectly regular whether up or downhill the other two horses seemed to know no other pace than the gallop 
though they performed many an eccentric curvet as they went along. The Yemshik, however, never touched them, only urging them on by startling cracks of his whip. But what epithets he lavished on them, including the names of all the saints in the calendar, when they behaved like docile and conscientious animals! The string which served as reins would have had no influence on the spirited beasts, but the words Naprava to the right Naleva to the left, pronounced in a guttural tone, were more effectual than either bridle or snuffle. And what amiable expressions! Go on, my doves, the Yemshig would say. Go on, pretty swallows. Fly, my little pigeons. Hold up, my cousin on the left. Gee up, gee up, my little father on the right. But when the pace slackened, what insulting expressions instantly understood by the sensitive animals. Go on, you wretched snail, confound you, you slug. I'll rust you alive, you tortoise, you. Whether or not it was from this way of driving, which requires the emshiks to possess strong throats more than muscular arms, the tarantas flew along at a rate of from twelve to fourteen miles an hour. Michael Strogoff was accustomed both to the sort of vehicle and the mode of travelling. Neither jerks nor jolts incommoded him. He knew that a Russian driver never even tries to avoid either stones, ruts, bogs, fallen trees or trenches, which may happen to be in the road. He was used to all that. His companion ran a risk of being heard by the violent jolts of the tarantas, but she would not complain. For a little while Nadia did not speak. Then, possessed with the one thought, that of reaching her journey's end, I have calculated that there are three hundred verses between Perm and Ekaterinburg, brother, said she. Am I right? You are quite right, Nadia, answered Michael. And when we have reached Ekaterinburg? We shall be at the foot of the Ural Mountains, on the opposite side. How long will it take to get across the mountains? Forty-eight hours, for we shall travel day and night. I say, day and night, Nadia, added he, for I cannot stop, even for a moment. I go on, without rest, to Irkutsk. I shall not delay you, brother, no, not even for an hour, and we will travel day and night. Well then, Nadia. If the Tartar invasion has only left the road open, we shall arrive in twenty days. You have made this journey before? asked Nadia. Many times. During winter we should have gone more rapidly and surely, should we not? Yes, especially with more rapidity. But you would have suffered much from the frost and snow. What matter? Winter is the friend of Russia. Yes, Nadia. But what a constitution anyone must have to endure such friendship! I have often seen the temperature in the Siberian steppes fall to more than forty degrees below freezing point. I have felt, notwithstanding my reindeer coat, my heart growing chill, my limbs stiffening, my feet freezing in triple woolen socks. I have seen my sleigh horses covered with a coating of ice their breath congealed at their nostrils. I have seen the brandy in my flask change into hard stone, on which not even my knife could make an impression. But my sleigh flew like the wind. Not an obstacle on the plain, white and level, farther than the eye could reach. No rivers to stop one, 
hard ice everywhere, the route open, the road sure, but at the price of what suffering, Nadia? Those alone could say, who have never returned, but whose bodies have been covered up by the snowstorm. However, you have returned, brother, said Nadia. Yes, but I am a Siberian, and when quite a child, I used to follow my father to the chase, and so became inured to these hardships. But when you said to me, Nadia, that winter would not have stopped you, that you would have gone alone, ready to struggle against the frightful Siberian climate, I seemed to see you lost in the snow and falling, never to rise again. How many times have you crossed the steppe in winter? asked the young Livonian. Three times, Nadia, when I was going to Omsk. And what were you going to do at Omsk? See my mother, who was expecting me. And I am going to Urtusk, where my father expects me. I am taking him my mother's last words. That is as much as to tell you, brother, that nothing would have prevented me from setting out. You are a brave girl, Nadia, replied Michael. God himself would have led you. All day the Tarantas was driven rapidly by the Emshiks, who succeeded each other at every stage. The eagles of the mountain would not have found their name dishonored by these eagles of the highway. The high price paid for each horse, and the tips dealt out so freely, recommended the travelers in a special way. Perhaps the postmasters thought it singular that, after the publication of the order, a young man and his sister, evidently both Russians, could travel freely across Siberia, which was closed to everyone else, but their papers were all en règle, and they had the right to pass. However, Michael Strogoff and Nadia were not the only travellers on their way from Perm to Yekaterinburg. At the first stages, the courier of the Tsar had learned that the carriage preceded them, but as there was no want of horses, he did not trouble himself about that. During the day, halts were made for food alone. At the post-houses could be found lodging and provision. Besides, if there was not an inn, the house of the Russian peasant would have been no less hospitable. In the villages, which are almost all alike, with their white-walled, green-roofed chapels, the traveller might knock at any door, and it would be opened to him. The moujik would come out, smiling and extending his hand to the guest. He would offer him bread and salt. The burning charcoal would be put into the samovar, and he would be made quite at home. The family would turn out themselves, rather than that he should have not a room. The stranger is the relation of all. He is one sent by God. On arriving that evening, Michael instinctively asked the postmaster how many hours ago the carriage which preceded them had passed that stage. Two hours ago, little father, replied the postmaster. Is it a Berlin? No, a Telga. How many travelers? Two. And they are going fast? Eagles. Let them put the horses to as soon as possible. Michael and Nadia, resolved not to stop even for an hour, travelled all night. The weather continued fine, though the atmosphere was heavy and becoming charged with electricity. It was to be hoped that a storm would not burst whilst they were among the mountains, for there it would be terrible. Being accustomed to read atmospheric signs, Michael Strogoff knew that a struggle of the elements was approaching. The night passed without incident. Notwithstanding the jolting of the tarantas, Nadia was able to sleep for some hours. The hood was partly raised, so as to give as much air as there was in the stifling atmosphere. 
Michael kept awake all night, mistrusting the Yemshiks who are apt to sleep at their posts. Not an hour was lost at the relays, not an hour on the road. The next day, the 20th of July, at about eight o'clock in the morning, they caught the first glimpse of the Ural Mountains in the east. This important chain which separates Russia from Siberia was still at a great distance, and they could not hope to reach it until the end of the day. The passage of the mountains must necessarily be performed during the next night. The sky was cloudy all day, and the temperature was therefore more bearable, but the weather was very threatening. It would perhaps have been more prudent not to have ascended the mountains during the night, and Michael would not have done so, had he been permitted to wait. But when, at the last stage, the Yemshik drew his attention to a peal of thunder reverberating among the rocks, he merely said, Is a telga still before us? Yes. How long is it in advance? Uh, nearly an hour. Forward, and a triple tip if we are at Ekaterinburg tomorrow morning. End of chapter 9